Truth of Lies. Episode 6, Sierra Leone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to Truth of Lies. My name is Tony Horn. I'm a ghostwriter and podcaster in Lancashire, England, in East Bolden, in the northeast of the country, Julie Phillips. So if you've been following the previous episodes, you'll know that we left it last time just over a year from Michael's death at the inquest, where we don't learn much. Julie, one thing that occurred to me after we recorded that episode was that we had neglected to mention in that year or so, the first year after Michael's death, just how you were. Were you all right? I was busy. I kept busy. Obviously busy with Holly. I moved back up north. I think it was the March. I think beginning of March. I moved back up north, moved in with my sister, got a house in Bolden. So I was busy waiting for the keys and getting everything sorted. And then obviously I went back down to pack up the house at Wheaton Barracks. Busy with solicitors. So I, I, I just kept busy, like very busy. You see, I'm glad that I asked that. Because I think your answer is quite revealing, the amount of times you said the word busy. Um, but it is a defense mechanism, isn't it? Sometimes used to block out a, a depression. And um, whether or not you were right rock bottom, that psychologist would probably say is a good thing to keep yourself busy, but you'd at some point have to allow yourself some time to grieve and it doesn't really strike me that you allowed yourself that time and yeah it does sound busy just simply by the nature of dealing with solicitors moving and bringing up a child who's not even two yet so is that true do you think you might have been rock bottom rock bottom and you think you might have just busied yourself out of it Probably. I had this fear that I've never I've never actually like wallowed in self pity and there's not many people who kinda know that I'm an army widow and exactly what happened. And I think back then I had a major fear that if I kind of gave in and grieved, and maybe it's the way I should have, I think there was always a worry that people would think I couldn't cope, and maybe they would take Holly away. I don't know. It was just, I think it was just this fear that I had to stay focused. I had to keep looking ahead, keep myself occupied, and obviously I was, because I had lots to do. I just didn't want to be, I didn't want to look a failure. You know, like, I've just lost my husband. Holly's eight weeks old. 
I've got all this going on with the MOD and solicitors. I lost my house. I lost my job. I lost friends, good friends on the camp. So, yeah, it couldn't have got any worse. But obviously, I didn't want people thinking I was a failure. I didn't want to sit at home wearing black and, and mourn and grieve. And I think I was probably frightened of the repercussions. Single mother on her own with Holly. Well, I think it's important right now to just put that into some context because two points. The first is, and I only know this from feedback that's come from the first few episodes, we'll catch up right with Julie's story where it sits today before we finish this series, but... I think you've been surprised by the number of people in your everyday life in 2023 who come up to you and now having heard these and say, I had no idea. Yeah. So, yeah. So my assumption from that is that you've still kept it pretty much under the radar. Yeah. And the other point is that context, which is we're talking about, the early noughties here. And society was changing. I don't want to drag things down to the superficial nature of social media, but if you think Facebook comes along in 2004 and everything changes after that, the way that we acquire superficial friends, the way that we crave attention by posting our dinner or our dog mm -hmm. on social media, the way we give away information about ourselves, the way we become desensitized. But we're not there yet. And one of the better advancements that has come through social media and just the general conversation of the last five to ten years is the mental health conversation and of course people trot out this line today you know it's okay not to be okay <laughs> they don't really do a lot with it they, they trot it out a bit but as i say in 2002 we're not there yet are we yeah. i mean it's impossible question and i'm really against this in conversation to ask people to take the circumstances of then and place them in the circumstances of today. And a good example of that is, is law. So if, for example, in the 60s and 70s, you did things that were acceptable back then and everyone else was doing them and there wasn't really a law about it, but in the noughties people have woken up and gone actually that was bang out of order and there should have been laws about that we're going to make laws i'm not sure that you can judge people in today's court by yesterday's standards on all cases on some you can so the parallel there is there's no way in the world over two decades ago you'd have been really comfortable being 
public and open about what's going on inside you, what you're coping with, and what must feel like a David versus Goliath struggle against the Ministry of Defence. That's Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Oh, one hand, I do wish... I do wish that there was social media. I think I wouldn't have been on my own. There would have been, I would have known more people like me, obviously widows, etc. And I think I would have, I don't know, I just think I would have been supported more if there'd been social media. But then again, maybe on the other hand, it might have, I don't know not helped i i can see where it would have helped and where it wouldn't have helped i think i'll deal with the latter and i think we're all guilty of this but you've always got to remember what you post on social media isn't actually for this particular minute hour and day and I mean that because of the way people scroll timelines. They're not necessarily online at the same time as you, but also the way people throw stuff back at you. Mm-hmm. I've had some innocuous, jokey tweets uh, sent to a government agency about me, and they were, as I say, <laughs> innocuous, but somebody tried to use them, evidentially. And if at your lowest point you had been reaching out for friendship on social media, you would have, A, found it, but B, might not look back on it feeling too brilliant, or those people that you worry about that might think you're not being a good mum with Holly – might have had their case. But the other side of that is, of course, we now have a whistleblowing culture, and you would have begun that whistleblowing culture, if you like, by, without a shadow of a doubt, being unable to resist putting your case out there when you couldn't get answers. So you Mm -hmm. might have speeded that up or shut them down in the way that they and we will come to this shortly, tried to shut down the reporter that wanted to go to Sierra Leone with you. Yeah. So Holly's first birthday, first real Christmas passes without Michael. It's for anybody that goes through grief, and we all do at some point, of course, I think it's true that the first year that you go around the calendar of an anniversary, a birthday, a time when everyone else seems to be having fun, they're they're probably the toughest, aren't they? Yeah, I love Christmas, and I've always loved Christmas. But I hate it in the same breath. And back then... I loved it because Holly was young and, you know, the excitement of putting the tree up and the family and Holly and buying the presents. And then, on the other hand, I hated it. I absolutely, I hated it. And I think especially because Christmas time 
I know you don't see what's going on behind closed doors in other people's houses and but we have this perception that everybody's happy and happy families and I hated it. I detested it. And I'd probably put on this brave face and, you know, lovely house, beautiful tree, presents, lots of presents for Holly. And I think deep down, I just thought, you know, life's shit. You know, that's just the way it is. I've lost somebody who I really loved and I'm on my own. And everybody else is with their family and partners and, yeah. I think even now, even now still, you know, I love Christmas, but I think it's still just, it's still hard. Julie, you speak for more people than you could imagine there. You speak for those people who've lost partners in a armed forces expeditions abroad. You speak for people who didn't make it through COVID. You speak through people who've lost a child early. And you speak for the at least one in three marriages that end up in divorce in this country. Everybody is individual. Each set of circumstances are different. I'm going to ask you a question. How much better do you feel when Boxing Day starts? I don't know, actually, because I love Christmas Eve. I love it. It's me, me, it's me, you know, it's probably one of my favourite times of the year. I love Christmas Eve. But on the other hand, I hate it. I can't explain. It's like a, whole, a love and hate relationship, you know. Some people like Marmite, I can't stand it. Maybe I didn't know the answer to that question, but I. But what I can hear from you, again, is what a lot of people will feel. Mm -hmm. How to put this into words? I mean, maybe it's that Christmas for me is that, that calmness in the background, that taking your foot off the gas. In fact, there's a line in a little-known Christmas song from 1984 by Brian Adams called Christmas Time. It's a bit of a cliched song. It's got all the elements of a Christmas song. But there's a line about seeing the joy in the children's eyes. And there are probably other Christmas songs that use that as well. But I think as you get older, and no greater example of this than holly you don't see christmas through your eyes the only joy you can take through it is through their eyes and when you look in the mirror and it looks back on you and you see what you don't have that's the sadness that brings that i love christmas and i hate christmas i think and the, mm -hmm. the boxing day remark from me is just bookending the the pressure of Christmas. You know, you. I think you'd find a lot of people that say to themselves or only to the closest confidant, just got to get through Christmas Day. And it's a time when crisis helplines are inundated. And, of course, common sense, as we record this, 
in the autumn of 2023 tells you it is just another day, isn't it? It is just another day. But all around us is that pressure to conform and enjoy, and it's it, it can send people to a dark abyss or push them overboard. I, I understand it, and I think many, many people listening will understand it. I'm really glad that we talked about that, though, because it's just another layer to the grief. I think everything we've talked about in the previous episodes comes with astonishment at some of the revelations and the way that they've been handled. And then, obviously, I think people will have a lot of time for that pain that you've been going through. But this is... What we've been talking about here are, are just ordinary moments. We've not been talking about hearing the news that there's been a road accident or whatever they thought it was. We've not been struggling to find the body. We've not been dealing with bravado at an inquest. We've just been talking about the everyday. So it's... Around about three years after Michael's death, that you're about to head to Sierra Leone. What's before that trip? What What is the most adventurous, off-the-map place you've ever been to in your life? <laughs> That's probably the most unusual place I've been and will be. When did you decide that you had to make that trip? Was it immediately or did it just, was it a feeling that just grew in you? The day he died. Yeah. I wanted to go over. As soon as they told me he'd been killed, I wanted to go over. I wanted to fly over and they wouldn't let me. Maybe I wasn't in the right frame of mind, but I wanted to go and I needed to go. Truth of Lies. In the first episode, I think we outlined a little bit about what we know of Sierra Leone, pulled from the internet, West Africa, on the Atlantic Ocean, capital Freetown, official language English, population, according to the World Bank in 2021, 8.4 million. Michael and his colleagues were on, I'm not sure how we describe the their tour out there peacekeeping yeah i'm guessing back in 2002 the only way to get there was on a military flight i don't know i think there was flight well i think there was yeah i'm not 100 percent positive but i think there was so to give the context as to the peacekeeping it appears that sierra leone had been in a civil war from 1991 until 2002 which ended with the help of UN forces, British troops, and some external air support. Sierra Leone is infamous for its blood diamonds, apparently. So I can sort of understand the context that if you're going to make that trip as soon after Michael's death as possible, you're probably going to need to do it with the guidance of michael's employer what do you think about that that they thought maybe you weren't right you know maybe you weren't ready to go out there do you 
How do you see that now? Do you do you see it as like they're trying to keep you away, or do you see it as well? Even if I wasn't right, I still had the right to go there. Yeah, the second one. Even if I wasn't right, I I, I I still I still wanted to go from day one, and I was adamant, and I didn't give up. And I think we go back to obviously social media. If there'd been social media, I think I could have gone a lot sooner. I just. I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't I didn't trust people and I didn't know how to get there. And I think I needed somebody. Somebody who'd maybe been there or was well travelled and somebody who could take me, say, Right, right, come on, we're going. We're getting a flight and we're going. And I didn't have that. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have done it myself, but I had a lot going on and I don't think I was capable of doing it on my own back then well it's an 11 hour 45 minute flight i think you probably know that by going out there you're not going to change the narrative i don't know if you'd have felt that in the days after michael was killed but you can't undo any of that anyway and i think I understand that you're going out there to settle your mind, really, aren't you? You know, you have to, you want to sort of walk in his footsteps and Mm -hmm. stand where events unfolded. And that's the reason for going, isn't it? You're not not going out there to think that you're going to solve this and find out what really happened. I don't think, are you? I think, really, I wanted to go out as soon as he was, as soon as I found out he was killed, I wanted to fly out and bring him back. For me personally, to fly, to fly home with him. I think yeah. that was, and obviously I wasn't allowed to do that. So. I've just looked on Skyscanner. If you want to go from Newcastle upon Tyne in the northeast of England to Freetown, well, you can. Take your 30 hours and cost you about 930 quid. Uh, if you leave at 2.35 tomorrow, you'll get there 30 hours and 35 minutes later after four stops, courtesy of EasyJet and Air Senegal. I can fly from Newcastle to Brussels, stop over in Brussels, and then Brussels to, hmm, is it Abu Dhabi? I think we touched down for two hours and then on to Freetown. That's how I did it. Wow. And then a Russian helicopter over to the main. That's how I, that's how I did it. Got off at the airport and then on a Russian helicopter. <laughs> how extraordinary. It was, yeah. Um, I was like, yeah. It's a, a bit weird, but yeah, that's how I did it. So when you did it was 2005. You did go on civilian airlines, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then... How the hell did you end up in a Russian helicopter? It was to get over to Freetown. They landed in they landed in Sierra Leone, but obviously to get to the place, I'm sure it was to get to Freetown, you'd take a Russian helicopter, well, a helicopter. I think you can drive, I think there is a drive, you can drive, but I think it's a long, long way. People listening to this will be going, ask her again, why a Russian helicopter? <laughs> I don't know. It was a Russian helicopter who, I know there was about 10 people in it, including me and the pilot. Don't know. So 
It sounds like a regular commuter hop for people arriving yeah. in the last yeah, airport that needed to be mostly military people around you, yeah? No. No, it wasn't. It was I think there were civilian wow. people from there, I think. It wasn't it wasn't their um, military, no. So in the time between Michael's death and you going, obviously we we're rebuilding your life slowly. You're dealing with the solicitors, but you know, how many times a month do you bring it up to the Ministry of Defence or whoever, I need to go to Sierra Leone? A lot. Top of the list. I, I harass them all the time. And then I think there was a delay due to elections and weather and excuse after excuse after excuse. And then finally, they gave me a date. I had to go and get all my uh, malaria tablets and stuff like that before I went. To show you how rare it is that British people or tourists go to Sierra Leone, the figure that I can find, the number of tourists entering Sierra Leone in 2022 was 3,500. Uh, this number had fallen, presumably, travel restrictions in result of the pandemic. It's not a lot of people. No. The delays that you were faced with from the Ministry of Defence there, a further spotlight on their stance towards you, which seems to be embedded in not tell you the whole story and drag it out for as long as possible. Let's just recap from the end of the last episode. So Julie is in a conversation with a reporter who is interested in accompanying her to Sierra Leone to make a documentary. Can you even recall how you met this reporter? I think it was one of the mums. I don't know whether it was through the Deep Cut and Beyond, obviously what I joined. I think it might have been through that. And somebody gave me a num and her number. I had a number for some reason. I don't know how I got it. I'm assuming that's it because social media wasn't really around at the time, was it? So definitely wasn't that. Was there much um, media interest after the inquest? I'm sure we read an article last time from the local newspaper in Newcastle upon time. I think the Gazette printed something that didn't have anything to do with the local press. Remind us how long you've been talking to this reporter before you head to Sierra Leone and just a reminder too from the last episode the reporter didn't make the trip but seems to have been a decisive factor in the Ministry of Defence waking up to their conscience. Quite a while I think I mean I can't put a specific time on it but started talking and obviously said I was going to Sierra Leone and we started talking about doing a documentary for her to go over and document obviously where the accident happened and the police station where he was took and things like that. Bearing in mind, but still up until this time, literally a couple of weeks before I went to Sierra Leone, they still hadn't accepted liability, like zero, zero percent. They wouldn't, they wouldn't accept anything. And then obviously Eve, the journalist, got in touch with them 
and said, I think looking back, I think it was kind of give them a push, like to let them know, look, I'm a journalist and obviously I'm going to go over with Julie. We're going to do a documentary and we're going to go here and go there. And they kind of, well, they basically told her she wasn't allowed to film. We're not allowed to film there and bloody blind. She said, well, it's civilian. It's a civilian area. You can't tell me where to film and not bloody blah. I think it was a type of warning. They didn't want her to go. And she kind of backed down. She said, look, not back down, but obviously she was still in contact with me. And then the next thing, they accepted liability. Not the full amount, not the full amount of liability. I think it was 50 odd percent. That was the first time that they'd accepted anything in all the time since Michael was killed. You see, anybody experienced in this kind of work from a journalistic perspective, let me spell this out, will be less interested in a road traffic accident in Sierra Leone than the whiff that they will be picking up that there is a cover-up. It's well-versed in public relations that it's not so much the, let's just say, scandal that brings people and organisations down. It's the 10 days or so afterwards where they reel from it, cover up, are evasive, and all the time journalists are digging behind the scenes and often know the answers to the questions that they're asking, but they ask them to see the nervousness, the body language, etc. And I can think of examples from politics in particular to broadcasting organisations where this has happened time and time again. So it's not the headline of the story, but it's the it's the fact that there might be some concealment of play. And she obviously spotted this, and you'd obviously encouraged her that that was very much the truth. And she wouldn't have got that far if your story didn't stack up, which we, of course, know it does. And we probably owe her a bit, really, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, do you make that trip alone? Yeah. Well, I was going on my own anyway, so, I mean, I was going on my own either way. Yeah, I did it. It was fine. I mean, it's strange, however much we fly, you don't, and the process is the same, isn't it? You know, you check in, you get on board, mm-hmm. you land, and you find your way out. But you, there's always something strange about landing in a new country, and I can remember for the first time landing in, south america or hong kong or australia and it's it feels very different doesn't it 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 just feels very different let alone a country that has so few visitors to it Mm -hmm. and you're arriving on a russian helicopter and you're going there loaded with grief and desperate to get to the bottom of this how did you feel when you stepped on sierra leonean if that's correct, soil for the first time. Probably shattered, drained. 
I was met by this lady. I'm sure you called her Helen. And she was army. She was a she was either a captain or a major. And she was looking after me while I was there. One of ours. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, there was a small little army camp over there. And, she, and that's where I was staying. The brigadier on the camp had this, like, looked like a like a little villa at the bottom of the camp. And that's where I stayed inside the army camp in the brigadier's house off, off an annex. So in a way, your independence is taken away from you. They've got an element of control upon you. And she, I don't think she said that day, but I think it was the next day she said. I think it's when she took me out. She asked us where we wanted to go, and I told her where. Obviously... The road where the accident happened, the police station, you know, wherever I wanted to go, she was going to take me. And I think it was after spending the next day with her that she'd said we were very concerned about how you were going to be and your attitude. And I think they'd been warned. Well, I know, I know they had been warned. And she said, I'm, I'm going to tell you now, I'm very surprised because. You're a really nice person. You're just, you're just a normal, genuine person who wants to find out, the, you know, the truth and wants to come over to the place where her husband was killed. I don't think that, that that was the picture that was painted of me. Well, I mean, I have a couple of observations there. Firstly, that's disgraceful that you've been so bad-mouthed in a chain of Chinese whispers. And the other is... And I said this a couple of episodes ago, and I'm not losing my heart here. It's a road traffic accident. It should be easy for them to explain and give you satisfactory answers. It's a lot harder for them, with respect, to explain what might have been going on in a Kabul, a Baghdad, under darkness, noise all around, civilian casualties, body cameras picking up anything. I mean, they are the the real struggles and challenges for the Ministry of Defence to deal with in that era, today, and tomorrow. But this has caused them such, I don't know, is exposed a level of amateurism in communication with bereaved and portrays a culture of concealment and an absence of transparency. And you wonder, and look, if you look at military from the beginning of time, they're in the business of not telling the whole story. You wonder how often stuff like this happens but of course it all comes back to this business of a potential claim and admitting negligence probably by the time solicitors have been dealing with this julie for the best part of a decade which we will come to in the next episode the award that they gave you probably well i mean i dread to think what the legal bill would have been i know it was a lot it's always the stupid way, isn't it? How often have you heard? The only winners here are the lawyers, mm-hmm. you know, and 
I've said it before, I just don't know how they get themselves into this situation. But in crisis management, from the moment that Michael dies, and remember as well, there's a comms blackout from Sierra Leone. Julie can't get hold of anybody, and that is standard, we understand. But in those moments afterwards, someone sows, let's just be kind, an uncertainty, possibly a half-truth, maybe a lie, and the whole thing just gathers speed, doesn't it? It's it it's not a masterclass in in communication, bereavement management, or duty of care to those families. And well, that lady that took you around wouldn't be expecting to end up being discussed in a podcast the best part of two decades later. Because there weren't really any podcasts back then, but (laughs) (laughs) let's get back to the scenes, the key locations. When you're there, I'm trying to imagine what you must think and feel. I'm trying to place myself there, and I'm thinking I'll probably be saying, just give me a moment. Can you now, as we talk about it, can you see yourself back in those locations and, and how you were? Callan, I can't. I just went over. She took us to the places where I wanted to go. She carried a gun. <laughs> she didn't show me that list straight away neither, but obviously it was quite a dangerous place, you know. They didn't really have tourists, as in a beautiful country, an absolute beautiful country, but an absolute shithole at the same time. Obviously, Sierra Leone's a very, very rich country with the diamonds the diamond mines but it's corrupt i've looked it up today not for Mm -hmm. the first time and it looks like so many countries that we've seen on the news for the wrong reasons and you hear of tourism opening up in places like iraq and afghanistan think of the early 90s and the conflict in what was yugoslavia and how much people love going now to places like Croatia. It's a forgotten moment in war that actually some of these places are beautiful in their imagery. We just we can only see them in one particular light. And that must have been an eye-opener, I suppose, because you probably only thought of it as a place where there was conflict and danger. And there had been that, which is why Michael was there. Mm-hmm. It was like you drive through for for an hour, two hours, through like pure poverty. And when I mean poverty, I mean no running water, no electric. People walking along the street with things on the head, carrying the water and um, the clothes yeah. were immaculate. The clothes were immac- like bright coloured clothes, and the you know they looked really clean. But it was something from a third world country and then you'd get to a beautiful beach out of this world and you'd sit on this beach and have lobster and chips in a basket for three pound and that's what I did and I was like I couldn't get my head round it because it was so we've just drove through all that and then you come to this and it was weird we went to this hotel I think it used to be a hotel and it had a swim pool. 
And I think it was run by the, because the UN were over there at the time. And we sat around this swimming pool and it was lovely. And I think obviously it must have been for people who had money. There was an odd restaurant around. She took me to restaurants for food. But the place was, you wouldn't want to live there. You would not want to live there. There is always a light side of dark side. And I can count so many times when I've seen scenes of poverty, natural disaster on the news. And you'll always see in amongst the melee, as Julie describes it, people carrying food on their head, a baby tied to them, barefoot. You'll always see someone in like a Manchester United Beckham football top or something mm-hmm. like that. It's extraordinary. But that, and I say that not to make light, but I say that to zone in on that contrast that Julie's talking about. I was fortunate enough to be invited to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, in, I think it was about 2006. And of course, most people's knowledge of Ethiopia is those images from 1984. I arrived, I think, about 10 o'clock at night, walked across the most beautiful marble floor of the airport, walked outside into a night full of stars, and I could hear a goat herder at work. And I knew then that that was the contrast that whatever money had bought that airport to impress Americans, et cetera, et cetera, or the Western world, right outside it lay the poverty. Um, you talk about the the wealth that is on offer. I had dinner uh, with Robert Dewar, who was the British ambassador at the ambassador's house. And strange, it was the only time in five days that I was poorly. But they had everything, you know. Any any liqueur, any Ferrero Rocher, anything, the best meat. And, of course, you walk outside the ambassador's house, outside the driveway, and there are people with leprosy. There are people living on the street. There are people begging. And it's a good image to never lose sight of because it's one that keeps you grounded. But, yeah, that must have been for you – and not everybody gets experiences like that. That must have been a real lesson in how can people be so poor and yet around them, wealthy people remain wealthy and in a wealthy lifestyle. There's no other way to put it, is there? It's, it's an eye-opener, for sure. How long were you there? Five days. Five days. I don't suppose you had the opportunity to speak with any locals. I suppose there's not really any record of those people that took Michael's body to the police station. Well, apparently I did. Um, not apparently, I did. I did. There was a little makeshift house on the side of the road that started. I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure whether they were there when Michael was killed, but there was a little straw hut house on the side of the road, right next to where the accident happened. And the family were there. I think they had three girls, three young girls, and and me and Helen obviously pulled over and we were looking at the accident site because I did take red plastic roses over to put near the tree because there was a tree. And we were talking to them, 
and he said he was one of the witnesses. I think it does say in, it does say in the witness like statements it is there's some witnesses from Sierra Leone, but he said he was there and whether he was, do you know what I mean? Like I did speak to him, yeah. So you didn't learn anything from that? No, no. I can feel that that would be important to have that conversation, however much or little information they, they gave you, just because, and as well-meaning as Helen appears to be, you are still being chaperoned. And to look into somebody's eyes that was there, even if they can't tell you anything, it is a, it's a, it's a different dynamic, I think. So I'm glad that happened. Did you speak with the police station or the hospital? I didn't go to the hospital. Went to the police station. I'm not even sure whether it was still open. I'm positive 100% that it was derelict. I didn't go to the hospital, no. I didn't ask to go to the hospital. I don't know why. I just didn't. I didn't need to go there. Did you have a moment to picture in your mind what it would have been like for Michael living there on that tour, the conditions inside the camp and the real life outside it? I don't think they were on that camp. They were on a ship. They all lived on a ship which was docked. So obviously the camp wasn't that big and they all they all lived on a ship. It's very difficult, I can imagine, when you're there thinking that line between living in the moment, taking it all in and sort of, have I got everything I need here? I'm not going to be coming back to this place. Have I covered all the bases, so to speak? When you left, were you satisfied that you couldn't have got any more out of that trip? I'm not really sure. I do know that the night before I was leaving, the brigadier invited me to this meal at his villa, what house, whatever. Helen came with me and there was a few officers around this. I don't even know why I went. You know when you feel so out of place? Like, as if I was sat with the Queen. <laughs> like, like, I was sat with the Queen and Prince Charles, and it was very, very military. And there was butlers and waiters and lovely meal, three-course meal, you know. And I think it was just really, like, to say, we've looked after her. We've invited her to this meal, you know, like, let's put on a show kind of thing. And it was all hoity-toity talk and Helen left early because she had to be somewhere early the next morning, something like that. And there was conversation. I can't even remember what the conversation was. It was something about being in the army and having to do as you're told. And if an officer tells you to do something, I don't know whether... I I'm not 100% sure, so I don't know whether it was me talking about the lead vehicle driving off and leaving them. There was something, some some conversation. And this officer to the left of me, sat at the end of the table, basically said, well, when I tell my guys to do something, they will, or they'll get 
what was it? They'll get strung up or something. And we started to have this discussion because I'd said, yeah, that'll be right. Comes from the top. So no matter what, the to what they're told to do, they have to do. And obviously back then, I think it was even more so, like when I was in the forces, do you know what I mean? They're trying to change things now, obviously against bullying and stuff like that. But I wanted to literally grab me fork and poke him in the eye because it was just like the way he spoke to us. Basically, if he told his lads to do something, and even if they thought it was wrong, they would do it because they'd get a good bollocking if they didn't. And this was the conversation, and I just thought, why am I sat here? Like, <laughs> There's a lot of that that is recognisable. The way you describe the dinner, the number of courses, and the hoity-toity. I recognise the same scene from the ambassador's house. And on his behalf, I think when expats, and I was part of a group, visit the country, and Ethiopia, like Sierra Leone, not many, I think he extends the hand of hospitality. But a lot of that is about image-making, isn't it? It's about posturing. And I think that the brigadier would have invited you because thought it was the done thing to do, but also probably wanted you to go away the next day thinking that they did care and they did look after you. This individual sounds like they've gone slightly off message and had a bit of a rant. and. I don't really see what his message there is to do with Michael, but these kind of army-type cultures, I think, are gradually being being exposed, and it's a difficult one, isn't it? You know, you're at war. <laughs> you can't ring HR up, can you? Hmm. But you do years later. It's, it's a situation with which you one can have some sympathy, but... I think what you've just sort of painted there is that picture of male-dominated, master-servant, borderline bullying culture. So when you do leave the next day, I mean, who hasn't taken off from an airport and looked out the window and had thoughts to themselves? Or were you back on the Russian helicopter? I can't even remember how I got home. I can't remember. I can't even remember getting on the flight. Have you have you erased the memories, or were you that drained? No, I, I can't remember. I cannot. I can remember driving down the A1 in my car. I know exactly what car I had coming from the airport early in the morning, but I cannot remember getting on that flight. No, I can't remember. Well, that sounds like the experience probably trained you understandably i think probably you're glad you went and i'll go again well that is obviously the next question isn't it when will you go i don't know um and why to commemorate an anniversary or um, I, I will i know one day i will go back i don't know when but i will is it important to take holly holly used to ask years ago like if she could go, she hasn't mentioned it for a long time. Um, back then, I think it was children under 10 or under 11, You, they, they, they couldn't go. I think, obviously, with 
the trouble and the, being a civil war and stuff like that. I think it's okay now. I still don't think it would be a place I would go on my own. What do you think is behind you wanting to go again? Do you think you've got to get it out of your system one more time? I'm different. It's nearly 22 years. I mean, it could be 30 years by the time I go. My life isn't like what it was 21 years ago, so I'm in a better place. Yeah, that's that's wise, to see it with fresh eyes. Yeah. Like we talked about earlier about the way that we look at events of the past in today's context and whether that's sometimes right or not, you can revisit a place that has caused you so much turmoil with fresh eyes when the passage of time has allowed you to do so. So, yeah, that sounds that sounds important to do it after all this time, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, we have the litigation to deal with. Next time on Truth of Lies. To me, I called it blood money. I don't really like talking about it. It was blood money. And if that's what it is, the cost of a life, the cost of Michael's life, then I would rather have walked away without anything at all. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com Truth of Lies is a Horny Media and Publishing production.